Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is a materialist confronts the paranormal. My guest is Dr. David Levitt. David is a computer scientist and a physicist. He is also the husband of Gail Heisen, who has been a guest on this program many times. Gail is the host of the small, medium at large podcast. She has mediumistic abilities. She has parapsychological abilities. She is a shaman initiated into the Mongolian tradition of shamanism. We've discussed all of that on many programs. I think it's fair to say Gail is a highly psychic person and her husband, David, a hardcore materialist. So, uh, today I'll be interviewing David about uh, uh, what it's been like for him to confront his wife's abilities. And uh, David lives in Sebastopol, California with Gail. Now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, David. It is a pleasure to be with you today. It's great to be with you, Jeffrey. We're going to talk about your life experiences, largely living with a, a very pronounced shaman, medium, psychic, your wife, Gail. And our viewers, of course, are very familiar with Gail Heisen because we've done, I think, seven, maybe even as many as eight uh, interviews with her at this point. But uh, I found that you, being a, a physicist and a computer scientist, a materialist, uh, living with a person with such pronounced paranormal abilities as, as your wife must have been uh, somewhat of a challenge for you. And I thought we'd explore that today. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's a totally unique uh, combo and I'm, I'm really honored. I love your, I love your work. I love your show. Uh, I love what you've been doing with Gail. I've peeked in from the sidelines and yes, uh, I am an extremely hard-nosed, hard science, I'm tempted to say skeptical person, but not the kind of pen and teller skeptic that's ignoring evidence and putting things down when they're real. So yes, it's, it's a unique way. Um, thank, thank you for inviting me. Maybe a good place to begin is to talk a little bit about your education. I know you were at MIT, you studied computer science in the department there with Marvin Minsky, one of the pioneers of artificial intelligence. He was my thesis advisor, and he he's probably the most brilliant person I've ever met. In a way, I have, we, I've had three amazing mentors, um, Marvin Minsky, uh, Timothy Leary, who, uh, who Gail, oh, here's a picture of, of Timothy with, with, with me and Gail. Uh, uh, but um, and uh, and Alan Kay, who was at the Xerox lab that invented a lot of the graphic user interface and personal computer technology that we all take for granted now. But uh, but uh, I met Marvin uh, the day I met him. I wound up changing my thesis advisor and uh, and becoming his student and starting to write algorithms. He's he he can improvise box style fugues, and you forget. And I, and and he'll forgive me for speaking of him in the present tense, even though technically he died several years ago, because his spirit lives. And uh, he's a materialist, so I say I, I need his forgiveness for that. But uh, uh, he could improvise beautiful Bach like fugues, and you could watch him do it, and it would remind people that that was commonplace in the classical era and almost forgotten now because people are so dependent on sheet music for that kind of thing. Not him. He was more like a jazz player in that sense. And, uh, and I'm a jazz player and we bonded in, uh, at the keyboard and I made my thesis topic, the algorithms that I use, uh, uh, that musicians use to improvise in a particular style. What, what, what does that require? And no one had really done that before. And uh, 
uh, and that, that so that was my thesis, and uh, you know, an important. I was in artificial intelligence at the AI lab, then moved to the media lab with him actually, because they really we were doing things that nobody else at the AI lab was doing in media. Making a Fats Waller style arrangement basically was 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 among the things that that, that I was doing. In a way, I want to talk about truth and uh, and propaganda and how do you, how you, how do you become a smart person? Uh, uh, you know, I was I was thrown out of first grade. I should tell you how I met Gail. <laughs> but um, <laughs> here's here's why here's why I'm going to make a point about acquiring knowledge, being rebellious in a, some of the same way, respects that you are. When I was in first grade, my parents. My mother came in to see how I was doing in school, and she couldn't find me in the classroom. And it made her a little uncomfortable, and she waited. And the teacher asked a question, and the answer was seven. And the answer seven came out of the closet. And my mother was, my mother was pretty aghast. She was like, here I am. We integrated this Nassau County neighborhood. It's, you, all, you bragged at the meeting about your integrated school, but you were referring entirely to my son and my daughter. And when I go to see the student in the school, uh, he's, he's, giving, he's, 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 being, he's in the closet. What's going on? And she said, well, he kept calling out the answers. And so obviously I was quite bored in first grade. And I was, so I, I say I was thrown out of first grade. My mother, of course, says I was skipped. And I was also skipped in third grade, but that's a, a, a more complicated story. But anyway, it wasn't until I was much more like an adult that I realized I had a privileged background in a number of ways in that, in that my parents respected me and my intelligence. And if, if another student had came out with a, was having a conflict with a teacher, they were in trouble with a parent. But believe me, in Rensselaer County, if... <laughs> If my parents always took the teacher side against mine, I would be lynched in, in, intellectually. So, so they always respected and listened to me. And I was allowed to be smart in a way that a typical st student is not. And uh, I think that affected my whole life in a lot of ways, so I had to mention it. Um, I also met Gail in seventh grade, and I could tell you that story because her special talents became evident very quickly. I know you had a very unusual upbringing, but yes, the story of how you met Gail in the seventh grade would be very interesting. So I was still two years ahead, and uh, we were in the same seventh grade. And actually, my mother was a teacher at that school, uh, an algebra teacher and eventually the dean. Um, so I was able to sort of hitch a ride and commute from Upper Manhattan through Harlem to Queens every day. Um, and... There was a very pretty blonde girl in my homeroom class, and um, I actually had this thought in my mind that, gee, it's, I'm kind of pleased that I'm all the way across the room from this girl because I can't stop staring at her, and if I was any closer, she'd probably notice. And she looked at me from across, across 7A1 homeroom class and said, David Levitt, did you want to kiss me? <laughs> and I wasn't a liar, so I said yes. And the next thing you know, I had gently crossed the room to give her a, a relatively chaste kiss. But that was the beginning of our relationship. She was two years older. She was more my sister's age. My, my sister uh, and her were good friends. And uh, I only wish that I could go out on all the jaunts to Greenwich Village and whatnot that Gail and, and, and Ramona uh, went out on. Um, I invited her over once for a school project um, to, again, my Manhattan, my family's Manhattan apartment, but uh, she didn't stay long once I mentioned that she shouldn't be alarmed that my snake was missing and if she sees it, <laughs> If she sees my snake, she shouldn't be alarmed, but it had the opposite effect. There was basically a gale-shaped silhouette through the wall as she quickly exited. Um, but uh, And she invited me to something with Swami Sachidananda sometime after. But basically, we didn't spend a lot of time together, and I went off to summer camp, and she went off to Woodstock. And she was 14 when the Woodstock concert happened. We still 
I saved the correspondence that she sent me because I thought she was so precious. And uh, it wasn't until it wasn't until I was teaching at NYU uh, in 1993 uh, after I, the 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 company I was at that had invented virtual reality on the West Coast uh, had dissolved that I wound up going to a high school reunion and ran into a friend we had in common and called her uh, maybe 22 years after our previous conversation and correspondence. And we wound up on the phone for hours and uh, and I wound up visiting her in my when, when I started at Interval Research, Paul Allen's think tank uh, in Palo Alto uh, that fall. And we never came apart. And and uh, and and I'm very lucky, <laughs> and uh, but but these but these phenomena persisted, <laughs> and I mean that was that, that was just a that was a special moment right there. But yes, Gail has this funny unfiltered view that most people would think is incompatible with science, uh, but it's also real, utterly real and true, and. You'd have to. It, it, you wind up questioning almost everything uh, about about your assumptions and your prejudices when something that you think that something that's so implausible keeps happening. One of our first weekends together, um, uh, she she woke up and said, "Oh, I was having the strangest dream about um, our our housekeeper's son vomiting," and the phone rings a minute later. And it's our housekeeper saying, I can't come in today. Um, my son is vomiting. <laughs> and, you know, this kind of thing happens constantly with her. The more alarming one, um, it's three in the morning. Gail sits up abruptly in the bed, um, stricken looking. She runs into the bathroom. She's projectile vomiting into the toilet. I'm hopping out of bed, trying to keep up with her. Her face is red. And then it completely changes. And she says, Uncle Willie died. Now, Uncle Willie wasn't in the hospital. Uncle Willie wasn't sick. Uncle Willie had tinnitus, was about the most serious disease that he had. But here's Gail experiences his death, including one of the main symptoms, vomiting while he's having it. And she's done this again and again with people that we love, that she loves. And, uh, and, and, it's, and it's real. And there's no way that, there's no ordinary way that she would know these things. It's happened with the love of her life. She was an Asian, had no way of checking with him, uh, to checking with anyone they knew whether he was okay because she somehow already knew she, he was gone and had experienced his last breath with him. Um, so, so, so these things don't yield immediately to materialism. And uh, it's not clear how she got that information. And it's not here clear how, you know, it's so, so it's, it's, a, cha it's a challenge for, for any scientist to make, to, to, to have all this evidence. By the way, um, so let's talk for a second about discarding evidence, because that's what most people do. And Jeffrey, you, you know, I wrote, I wrote you a birthday present. And in a way, you're yes. giving me a wonderful present back. It's actually the most the most read thing I think that I've posted on Medium in years, um, and it was in honor of your birthday and 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 your award for evidence and proof of of life after death. But and so I wrote this Medium article, and I think people have this habit of discarding evidence that doesn't fit their theory. And the other day we were watching or any of their theories. We, the other day we were watching The Dropout. Have you seen that, Jeffrey? No, I haven't. So the, the scammer uh, for th the company Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes, in a key scene, they're saying this technology works, don't look too closely at it. And it's something, you know, people's natural politeness prevents them from drilling down at just the key moments. But they, then finally someone says, but these people's results were wrong. They don't have this ailment. What? And and the technician says, "Oh, that was an outlier." We're told to we're, we're we're told to discard the outliers. But of course, if that so-called outlier was used in a medical uh, diagnosis or treatment, that person might die. 
So she was an extreme case. But in general, discarding outliers is standard. And that's one reason people don't learn anything except things that they already think they know. Um, you know, that's part of why I love thinking aloud as a concept, because it's thinking is antisocial. Yeah. <laughs> thinking, not politely pretending that what you've just been told must be true is rude. And, uh, uh, and you, you don't discover anything unless, unless, you, unless you challenge a little bit. Unless you're willing to, the outliers are actually where the meat is, where the good stuff is. Um, uh, that that funny wobble in uh, Mercury's orbit that you know you'd like to say was an experimental error, but it kept being so consistent was what's was what proved Einstein's theory. Um, and and that and that, and that Newton didn't understand gravity the way Einstein did is the, this, these outliers. You know, a near misses, one of the principles in artificial intelligence is you can't learn a concept without negative examples. You, you know, when, when you are trying to make, you know, it's the holy grail of artificial intelligence to make a program that learns, learns the way a four-year-old does. This is an arch. This is an arch. You can show them a thousand things. They won't learn an, any, what an arch is until you say, this is not an arch. That is not an arch. You can train a neural network to distinguish between an arch and not an arch by giving it a lot of information of that sort. A lot of AI work was funded by the military. Actually, a lot of psychic research was too. And you have to be careful and skeptical of their biases because they want to say that the thing works. And then they discover they think you recognize tanks. And then you realized without the right negative examples, you, you really just picked up the atmosphere uh, on the day that they filmed the text in your sample. You have to be hard-nosed about it. In addition to your scientific training, working with Marvin Minsky, whom, incidentally, I had the pleasure of interviewing about 30, 35 years ago, and uh, it was very clear to me that he was a materialist. In fact, he went so far as to say, we are just nothing more than sophisticated machines, and we should be proud of it because we're the most sophisticated machines there are. Uh, and if we don't appreciate what great machines we are, we're doing ourselves a, a disservice. Uh, yes, and on most of that, I would, I'm not sure he said that's all we are, but uh, yes, most of that I'm in full agreement with him. And, uh, we do do ourselves, you know, it's, it's strange, but we, first off, yes, we, there's a lot of assumption just going into it that it's the neurons in our brain that are responsible for our intelligence and our behavior. And that may indeed be true. And to materialistically try to animize that is, uh, is, uh, is, is, or just to understand it is a noble, exciting goal. But that doesn't explain what Gale does. And that doesn't explain what Ingo Swan and, and the other, uh, uh, other, other paranormal uh, savants, or whatever we should call them, is. Uh, and he, he, he tended to be on the skeptical side. I was telling the Uncle Willie story. I was actually at a party with a bunch of quite birthday party for uh, Jaron Lanier, the inventor of virtual reality, last week with Gale and my kids. And uh, there was uh, one of my former media lab colleagues was there, and I mentioned this Uncle Willie experience. And she did what everyone naturally does is say, oh, well, maybe he had another, you know, as if, as if she knew more about her medical condition than Gail or me. She was, you know, immediately put on her skeptic hat and was like, well, surely they've been convinced by something that they shouldn't have been. Uh, but she said the most interesting thing is we were leaving the party because she's a brain scientist. She actually invented, well, a bunch of things uh, before and, at, and since MIT. But since I guess the, I was saying goodbye and the people she was talking to were talking about psychedelic research. And she surprised me by saying, well, maybe, maybe the work you're doing 
she was saying, finally, people are using psychedelic therapy in a way that actually helps people. And it was poo-pooed for 30 years. But I know as a brain scientist that the people who poo-pooed it were wrong and that these people are really being helped and our understanding of the brain is improving. Maybe, maybe the paranormal phenomena that Gail is involved in is going to be the next new science that attains credibility and understanding in a new way. And I was like, well, she, she, she yes, she, you know, that, she, and I was relieved that she was not, that she, that she was open enough to see that, that, that all of this data was important, not outliers to be discarded. And, uh, and, and that, and that there's, a, there's a new field of science that's going to emerge from it. Let us hope. Some people think this is always going to remain outside of science. There's this funny thing about repeatability and, you know, Dean Drayton does fantastic work and and, and Gail has frequently been a, a subject in his paranormal experiments in a bunch of different levels. I've seen her get a gut feeling about a photo before it's shown to her and if it's a horrific photo, it's a strong reaction, but she hasn't seen the photo yet. And he, he gets these wonderful results and she's so reliable. She's so, these things are so frequent with her that I often thought, gee, Dean is trying to get a little, you know, get, get enough sigma to get, uh, to have a large sample and get a little result that shows that this is real or significant. And I, my, my reflex is always, why doesn't he just use Gale as the only subject and then he'll have 100% all of these. <laughs> um, and I think that, 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 that that represents this challenge where what if, you know, these things aren't inherently repeatable. And, uh, you know, when Gail, when Gail gets a totally unexpected call from someone um, asking where his patient's missing mother is, and she wants to be so bad, helpful so badly that she tells him, you, you can't fake that in a laboratory. But there, there she is describing exactly where she is, um, and it's it's it's, uh, it's it's hard to build that into a repeatable experiment. Now, in addition to your scientific training, which certainly helped to cultivate a materialistic attitude towards life, you also had an unusual education, associating with a radical left wing people as, as, as you grew up, including your parents. And actually, I learned to my pleasure in an earlier conversation with you that uh, growing up, you knew my cousin, Edith Siegel, who was a card-carrying communist. Yes, yes, yes. I, uh, I think you learn more when you hang around with people who have forbidden ideas and you are mired in propaganda when you don't. I mean, take this, this won't have changed, but, but we're, so we're in a week where the most radical dystopian science fiction thing of a woman who decides what to do with her own body might be arrested for it. I mean, these things were until recently thought to be just the most miserable dystopian fantasies of a handmaid's tale. And now they're true. They're about to become true nationwide and, and 26 states are going to follow. And of what, what word is used for the people who take these extreme radical positions? They're called conservatives. What kind of propaganda is it where you're obliged, and here's, here's poor Chris Hayes on MSNBC describing this radicalness, and the chyron underneath him is lying and using the word conservative because that's the polite term for these fascists, these right-wing radicals, is to call, you know, if you looked up conservative, it means it's a gentle, keeping things the same definition. And in this extremely Orwellian fashion, right-wingers say no, call us conservative and all of the Democrats line up and say, of course, you're conservative. <laughs> You'll take away all our rights, but you're conservative. So if you're not willing to say the communists have a point or that Bernie Sanders has a point or that social, that, 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 then you're engaging in another big lie. You're, 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 you're the real enabler of the big lie. If only Republicans were saying they were conservative, you'd say, ha ha, 
It's a little more like bad science fiction. But when MSNBC and the Democrats and everyone says the people stealing women's bodies and their freedoms are conservative, everybody is everybody is participating in the Orwellian joke without being in on it. So yes, be, the Edith Siegels who tell the truth, the Paul Robesons, I had a birthday surprise and saw a Paul Robeson movie as I woke up. But he, it, uh, and, and it was, my mother was an actress. Yes, go, going back to your question, my mother was the first black actress. Her name was Milroy Ingram then, then, then Milroy Levitt. Um, but she was the first black actress to appear on Broadway in a role that wasn't as a servant or a slave. And Ossie Davis and uh, his 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 group of free or thinking people had taken what was considered a very mild uh, play called Green Pastures, a musical that you know you can picture Negroes singing God stories as being a very submissive activity, but who was like, no, let's make a production in which the black characters are treated as human beings and with respect. My mother played the first woman, Eve, and other roles in, in this amazing musical that Ozzie Davis and other people who, you know, and of course, yes, all of, uh, so many of our Jewish friends and the, you know, interracial marriages were pretty rare back in 1951 when that came out. My father saw her on the stage and, and fell in love and realized how in absurdly intelligent she is. Uh, she's passed too, but again, uh, and, uh, and pursued her. <laughs> Uh, and uh, uh, um, in, a, in a very romantic story, which will, uh, but 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 this was a whole. Godfrey Cambridge would drive my father's cab. He he owned a cab and a medallion, a very valuable thing in, in New York in those days. All these different, very now the term is woke, but we don't use that because everyone tries to make it an insult. All of these intelligent, aware of history, black and Jewish people. Uh, who, in those days especially, were um, were treated by the McCarthy era right wingers as pariahs, were the, the actual people telling the truth about what was going on in America, and you weren't you know everyone everyone was so fearful of the bullies who included um, uh, Roy Cohn and Richard Nixon that you couldn't get the truth very easily. You had to find your own newspaper. Um, and it's, to tell the truth, that's sort of true today. The corporate network that stands for Democrats, MSNBC, and the one that stands for the evil Republicans, Fox, if you don't ch catch democracy now, you'll never find out the truth because they're both corporate networks uh, otherwise. So my parents um, were not victim to all of the assumptions that kept so many people's minds so small in the 1950s. Now, there are many positive things to say about the radical leftist movement that your family was part of and my family was part of. My distant cousin, Edith Siegel, wrote a book, a child's book, uh, back in the early 1950s called Be My Friend. And it had on the cover a black child and a white child holding hands together. And uh, it caused a scandal. Isn't that tragic? Yeah. That was in Wisconsin? No, that was in, in New York. Too friendly to niggers? What, the, what does that actually mean? My God, for that to be a scandal just says everything. Jeffrey, you know what? I, it wasn't completely clear to me until the last few years, but I didn't realize that the Confederates have so far won the insurgency. You know how when George Bush stood up and said, mission accomplished in Iraq, and it didn't get through his head for years that Anbar province had what they began calling an insurgency, where they did everything short of putting this statue of Saddam back up because they despised the American, I mean, how could you not despise people who say, hey, if I say Iraq 9-11, Iraq 9-11, 1100 times in one year, that means they had something to do with it and are guilty and we should kill and attack them. It was so absurd. So yes, insurgencies after what was supposed to be a war that somebody supposedly won, 
are, can be very effective. Well, what happened in 1865? You have Abe Lincoln saying, mission accomplished. And then practically hours later, having a bullet through his head. And 50 years later, and oh, well, I, I don't want to skip the whole um, reconstruction, but really most of our most of our school, you realize now that we're catching up in the new movement, most of our schools were about hiding the reconstruction and pretending that the North really won. But what really happened over those 50 years is that every per every black person that thought they could vote was prevented from voting, and every black person who was in legislative office got taken out and intimidated. And by 1915, the, the great medium of cinema had its first feature film, and it was called The Birth of a Nation, and it was about how fantastic the Klan was, and how the discovery that niggas is scared of sheets was the thing that was going to allow us to kill those mongrels and uh, and and keep them keep them away from our women, and that was that was American culture. Uh, for, for so what, really, what we've had is so that was and that was just the beginning of the insurgency that involved putting giant statues of the people who supposedly lost the war all over the country, and the insurgency won. And then it won for another 50 years. It's 160 years later, and we're just sort of recognizing that those statues mean the North lost. And George Floyd means the North lost, except that someone caught enough of it on camera that there's a chance we can change that. I don't want to really get into politics too, too much, David. I try to avoid it. Un understood. I, but you, you did raise it, and I'm saying the leftists are right about this. And I agree, but I want to go to a different point, if I may, uh, because I, I'm not, I don't think your points are invalid in the least. One of the real problems, of course, with public discourse is that there's so much lying and whatnot in politics that people get sick of it very quickly, and I don't want to spoil your show, but I'm glad you raised Edith Siegel. I'm glad she, I'm glad she didn't go to jail as a commie for letting white and black kids hold hands. The point I wanted to get to is... Is, is that in spite of all of the uh, wonderful social justice positions taken by the radical left, they were by and large hardcore. I, I do have to cut you off. The left is not radical. The left is into equality. That's not a radical idea. The right is radical, but go on. And I agree with you there, but as a card-carrying communist in those days, these people were supporters of Stalin. And I, I don't think they were aware of all the atrocities that Stalin was committing, but... Yes, yes, I understand your point. So in, in that sense... I don't know that my parents were supporters of Stalin ever, but they were, they were probably more optimistic than they should have been. Perhaps Edith was. Edith, I think, composed a dance concert in honor of Stalin. And in, in, in honor of what they thought he was rebuilding Russia in, into a new uh, society. And uh, they were very hopeful for what Stalin could do. But the point I'm trying to make here is, is that, by and large, these people were hardcore materialists, not from a scientific perspective, but from a political perspective. You mean Stalin or Edith or? Yeah. Well, you know, we're thinking about economics and whatnot. I'm not, I'm not sure I understand your point yet. Well, let me put it a little differently. I believe you explained to me your parents were atheists. Yes. Well, so atheism is another form of materialism. It's a denial of the supernatural. I wouldn't say that. No, absolutely not. Um, the... The version of Christianity, which has so little to do with Christ's values, that was, is, I mean, I mean, isn't, isn't, here, here's what my parents would have objected to. We have five now, starting with Clarence Thomas, who lied about his obsession with long dong silver, which you could easily find in his uh, video rental receipts, who lied in order to get on the Supreme Court, and five Four other Catholics all perjured themselves under oath in order to do to women what they did this month. You can, you can call them religious people. 
and most people would consider them would 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 claim that they were religious people, but that but they're not following Christ. They're not they're they're not following the golden rule, and atheists have more in common with Christ than those Catholics. They lying for power is not what Christ was about. So they they had a properly skeptical view of the mainstream ideas of being spiritual. And I said, Mom, what uh, do I have to do? I have to lie and put my hand on my heart at the beginning of school every day and claim that I believe that this is a nation under God. We had some long conversations, and something interesting happened in that same second seventh grade class because I had that question since I was seven. I said, I think. I think it's bad if we let these people, I mean, right, isn't it terrible? Right, you say atheism is anti-spiritual, but no, atheism is anti-lying. If you're the greatest follower ever of Jesus Christ and his values, and you're sitting in a classroom full of people that you know includes agnostics, because they're too young to have hard and fast rules about that, and atheists, and you're all being told that when you put your hand on your heart and pledge, you should say what you're told whether you believe it or not. That's not an anti-spiritual view. That's a truth view. That's a, that's a, I respect the, the other kids in the class who may not think the same thing that I do, and I'm not part of the project to coerce them into believing in the same God as the teacher. So in seventh grade, it's because no one else was... Well, it, actually, it was Vietnam, and a lot of people, including the teachers, were interested in politics. In the seventh grade, when no one else put their hand up for who wants to be class president, I did it, and suddenly I was the class president in seventh grade homeroom. And I said, well, what about this pledge thing? Does everyone believe this? Should we all be saying this? I don't, I, I, I don't believe it. I don't like being told to lie with my hand on my heart at the beginning of every school day. I think it's corrosive, or whatever words I use then. And they said, you're right. We'll never say it again. And I think, in a way, that's an important story. Here I was 10 and a half, younger than the other kids, but thinking enough outside the box to allow people to tell the truth, I think is extremely important and uh, I don't think you can saddle that that's not a that's you know yes materialism uh, is great too but religious coercion is 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 really especially for my parents generation that's that's what that's and certainly it's not it's not the fifth it's like we've gone back 60 years religious coercion is the new law of the land for women and to say that that means uh, those women aren't spiritual completely distorts what's going on. That was a wonderful exposition of uh, how you developed your views. Uh, but I imagine it's true, David, that as a result of having married Gail, as a result of all of the things you've witnessed, like uh, Uncle Willie's death, for example, it happens every week. Something, something hard, very hard to explain, happens frequently in this household. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, has that shifted your attitude about the material universe? In a way, uh, but and it, but I tend to think of it as there are there are other factors that we don't understand very well. So, one of the reasons I think these experiments might be hard to repeat. And again, Gail, Gail was very, although her, 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 her book and her uh, podcast, A Small Medium at Large, is a wonderful title and it's a bit tongue-in-cheek, she resisted the idea that she's a medium, because it's, but it's pretty hard to describe what she does. But sometimes I think that something, you know, maybe you maybe you've talk to the physicist who puts it in the quantum terms. I think Dean Radin does that sometimes. There's some forces some communication paths that we don't understand very well at all that allow these things to happen. I think of it, you know, there's that scene in The Matrix where they go into, I don't know, an apartment building in Queens and go around a corner and suddenly there's a, a, a humble black woman who knows everything. <laughs> Gail is that woman. I don't know how she got there. You You have to be humbled by it. And if you're asking... The, the, the humble part of spiritualism, I'm down. We don't understand everything. We, 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 it, it, there are mysteries beyond 
what Einstein and Newton and Marvin understand, and me. And, and so I'm completely humbled when this happens, and especially when it happens this frequently. <laughs> so it's a frequent part of your life now, but I have to assume when you were studying with Marvin Minsky at MIT, when you were being educated in, in this environment with my wonderful communist cousin, Edith Siegel, who I gather was one of your teachers, well, actually, she was she was a frequent visitor to our summer camp along with along with Pete Seeger, who who, who I'm sure some right winger would slam as a radical, but who was just saying this land is your land. In that wonderful environment, I'm very sympathetic to left wing approaches to social justice. I am totally sympathetic to that. I endorse it 100 percent in spite of uh, the various right-wing critiques. But the point I'm trying to get to with you, David, is that you wouldn't have found in that wonderful environment any uh, strong support for you to explore the paranormal or the sorts of things that you are now experiencing on a regular basis with your wife, Gail. Uh, we did not have paranormal stuff in my camp. On the other hand, I have to say, back when I was probably 12, I was fortunate enough to come across Robert Monroe's Journeys Out of the Body. And at the same time that I was learning to play jazz and ragtime with my, my best friend, we were like, wow, it sounds like he really experienced this. What's going on? And there was um, Charles Tart's Scientific American article about the paranormal. And I was interested in it at that time. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not something that came directly out of my family or my school or, the, you know, those other parts of my culture, but they weren't, weren't forbidden either. Exp you know, expanding the mind was, and, and being honest, were, were, were the rules and the values, not, not rejecting things that seemed spiritual or unexplainable. So, you know, I don't remember any pushback from my family when I said, you know, uh, maybe this Monroe guy and this Tart guy are onto something. Did you ever uh, bring those topics up with Marvin Minsky? You know, we actually had Penn and Teller as consultants at the Media Lab, <laughs> and, <laughs> and I uh, and and Marvin was a skeptic, and I tried to explain to him and Gloria, his beautiful uh, wife, his brilliant wife, the doctor. Um, what had happened with Uncle Willie or something like that. And they were, she was, you know, you could see in their face that they're eager to dismiss it. Um, and, uh, uh, and that they've seen a lot of, you know, the truth is a lot of people, especially people who call themselves religious, are gullible fools and uh, wishful thinkers and people who don't look hard at evidence uh, and uh, are easy victims of con artists. And uh, so they're, so Penn and Teller, of course, are more focused on that than they are on, well, you know, and so we, you know, we have to be, uh, we, we have to be cognizant of both things as, as, as tricky as it is. That there are, you know, and I'm sure there's plenty of, you know, there, there, there were plenty of charlatans a, a century ago, and I'm sure there's plenty now. And then there's people doing sincere, thoughtful, critical research in these areas. And I've known Dean for 20 plus years now, and, and, and this whole community that you're a, a, an important part of. Um, uh, and and, 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 and pulling, pulling apart what's, you know, you can't be too eager to believe. Uh, or you, or, or you won't really learn. Well, as I recall the story, David, the reason that Gail came to the attention of the parapsychology community is because you were working with Dean Radin at the Interval Corporation. That's correct. Paul Allen had this extraordinary think tank uh, secret lab called Interval Research. Parts were secret. Most of it was secret, and. Very few people had heard of Russell Targ and Dean Radin uh, being joining the staff to doing what we call then the Phenome Project, where we were trying to figure out whether there was a, a scientific or even a business application or you know how real these things were. So 
Uh, Paul Allen, who's also passed, uh, was brave, smart, and uh, Dick Schaup was really, who was actually one of the computer scientists who invented what the the, the green what now is the green screen um, uh, matting capability that's 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 universally used. He he was interested in this, and I joined the Phenome Project, right? And and uh, and or I met Russell and Dean. You were hired as a conventional computer scientist. Well, no one has ever called me conventional, Jeffrey, but yes. I mean, not as a parapsychologist. Not as a parapsychologist at all, no, no. I was doing, yeah, I was doing software for, the, the idea was to make software for the next 10, or products and for that might be 10 years after, uh, after this research started. But it was so great, and it really was a, it was a great little, um, I think uh, feather in the cap that Paul Allen was was ready to reach out to to, to Dean and Russell with 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 Dick Schaup's encouragement, um, and she brought uh, and and I said this, this they, and they said we need subjects for our experiments, and uh, uh, and I said well I this my wife has these things all the time is it like this and they said yes. Uh, have her in, and and that was really the first time that she um, collected the stories that, that that had been so abundant throughout her life. She even tried to, and her nieces, who were the audiences for many of these, wound up compiling this list with us. That that was really kind of extraordinary. And by the by the time Gail, you know, they thought they were going to interview her for a minute for a few minutes, and three hours later, everyone's jaws were on the table and we're like we should have recorded this you should write a book um let, let's let's use you as a subject in these experiments and 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 that's how that part of her career got started were you surprised that she uh, performed so well under laboratory conditions not at all like i said i thought if they used her in the laboratory all the time they might get a hundred percent um, it seemed like she had a gift, and uh, uh, I didn't pretend to understand it. I think something about her big heart. Well, and also you mentioned earlier uh, about the replicability problem in parapsychology. I, I don't see it so much as a problem. I think parapsychological events are statistically replicable, like, like most things in uh, behavioral science. I think it's the the data for parapsychological phenomena turns out to be stronger, for example, than the data that taking a baby aspirin every day will help prevent heart attacks. But in any case, your experience with Gail seems to be that if there is a replicability problem, she could solve it. I do sometimes think that, and I do think that people who, you know, getting people who may not be talented in that way or, you know, have a heart like that uh, will just tend to dilute the data and you'll say, oh, it's significantly significant, but we don't understand it any better and some of these people got it wrong and we don't know why. Um, uh, so I do think that there, there there's, studying people like Gail is uh is a worthy thing, but you have to, uh, I mean, not just worthy, but maybe the key to, um, to, to, to uh, if not repeatability, then real understanding. And, 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 you know, I, I sometimes think of Gail as a little like uh, Zelig, if you remember the Woody Allen movie, you ever see it? Yes, indeed. And he was like so, I mean, he wouldn't just be described as, as big hearted in a way. The Woody Allen's point was he was timid and a conformist. But if he was standing around a lot of black people, his skin color would change. <laughs> he, didn't, he wanted so desperately to be invisible that he defied physics. And I think on some level, Dale's desire to help people and comfort people is so great that she defies physics. And it's, it's, it's a very special thing. You're putting your finger on something interesting, which is rarely discussed in scientific terms, but it's it's the power of love. You know, maybe there's neutrinos involved, but I think love is involved somewhere. I think so. Uh, it's uh, it's very strange because she's, you know, 
She's good at communicating it. She's good at communicating. There's all these people who's, who've seen her on your shows and on her own small, medium, at large podcast shows recently. And uh, I'm not a jealous type, but they're in love with my wife. And, uh, and, uh, and I don't think it's a coincidence that she has these that, that she also has these powers. She gives the love out. She she gets it back. She hears stories that people. I'm a materialist, but I'm an emotional, passionate guy. I can't tell you how many times in my life, in, in with Gail, people have said something, all frequently a long story, and they either started or ended with, "I've never told this to anyone before in my life." She brings that out in people. And sometimes it's a psychic part of them, and sometimes it's a trauma or an assault that they've never shared. And uh, but but and sometimes they're a total stranger. And the person they're sitting with who introduced her to Gail said, why didn't you ever tell me that? They're a stranger to Gail, but the people who've known them for 30 years have never heard the story. So that's implausible. Well, David, this has been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate your passion. I appreciate your passion both for Gail and for social justice. I think we're finishing it. Gail has to peek in because we were just finishing on one of your many gnarly powers. <laughs> I don't know what that one is, but hi. Hi. Well, we're just wrapping up. All right. I'll be looking forward to listening to it. Yeah. And it's just so great that we're both on the same show together. <laughs> <laughs> okay, love you guys. So, David, thank you so much for sharing all of this with me. I know we haven't even touched on the work you're doing today in artificial intelligence, but I will certainly put a link on, to your website in the description of this video so that people can check out what you're doing in the area of augmented reality. Please do, augmented reality and, and the physics of gravity are two of my greatest passions. And please share the links about, about them. And uh, I mentioned some of them uh, in, in, in the article I did for you on your birthday, and uh, we'll have to talk some more. Okay, well, thank you again for being with me today, David. Thank you, Jeffrey, it was a tremendous pleasure. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.